You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. Today, uh, we have with us Emerson Powery, who's a biblical studies professor at Messiah College. And uh, it was a very interesting conversation. We brought him in because, Pete, you had heard him before. Yeah, he came to Eastern University a couple of years ago. He gave a talk on this topic, which we're going to talk about in a second. And uh, it was just very impressive and really awakening and, and and just, you know, listen, you hear people talk about things they know something about and you don't know much about it at all. And I was just very impressive and I felt like I was missing out on so much. I just knew I wanted to keep talking to Emerson about this topic. So. And we want to be we want to be clear about the topic. So we're, we, we're putting it off because we want to talk about it a little bit. It's biblical interpretation in the antebellum narratives, narratives. of the enslaved. Right. And that comes from the, the subtitle of his book. And so, let's just talk a little bit about what that means. We're talking about biblical interpretation, how the Bible was interpreted in the antebellum narratives of the enslaved. What's the antebellum narratives of the enslaved? Before the Civil War. Right. So, while they're enslaved, there's these narratives that, that historians like Emerson have have been able to recover right. and read and see how the Bible is being used in these letters. And he calls them narratives. I think there's letters and other right. parts of, of text. Well, they're telling their story. Right. And from the point of view of those who were formerly enslaved. So, this is these stories are really being documented, let's say, after the end of the Civil War. But it's just a wonderful window into really the nature of biblical interpretation, that we're all doing things like appropriating texts in ways that are meaningful to us. And you know, I just thought it was a fascinating discussion when I heard him first a couple of years ago and when we had this interview with him. And uh, yeah, and the, the title of the book is The Genesis of Liberation. That's the main title. And that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, we had a really uh, enlightening time talking with Emerson about a topic he's thought an awful lot about. All right. Well, let's get to it. I think the Bible cannot speak for itself. I think the Bible always has interpreters. Well, if there's no one concrete way of understanding these texts, if we're all sort of reading these things in light of our experience, how do you ever know which side is right? And the answer might be, well, how are you treating people? No, I think that's right. You know, love God, love neighbor seems to be kind of a fundamental starting point. So how does one treat one's neighbor? How does one use the Bible in relationship to the other? Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Welcome, welcome, uh, Emerson, to this uh, episode of the podcast. It's great to have you on. Great. Thanks to be with you guys. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about uh, our topic for today. So, before we get there, though, 
Can you just give us a little one or two minute spiritual biography, both your spiritual journey, but also how did you become interested in this topic of the Bible as a, as a source of liberation and how the Bible was received in the Annabelle period and, and all, all, all the things that you do now? How did you get into that? So, maybe start there. Okay. I grew up in a, a Christian home. My, my father is a minister, retired minister, and my parents actually came to the U.S. They come from the Caribbean, and they came to the U.S. as missionaries. So I grew up in, in, in many ways as a missionary kid. Um, I was born in New York. My two older brothers were born on the islands, but I was born in New York. So I grew up in a home in, in which there was lots of scripture reading, lots of engagement with the Bible. But my parents also worked for the American Bible Society, so they were also uh, very ecumenical. And that also shaped uh, my own kind of engagement with the Bible as an early ch- in my early years, uh, even though my father was, a, uh, was the Pentecostal, was the black pe- Pentecostal representative at the American Bible Society. They had a white Pentecostal and a black Pentecostal representative at the American <laughs> Bible Society. That's probably a conversation for another day, but that meant that the way we read scripture was very much about our experience and our, uh, how it can inform our, our spiritual lives daily. And and I grew up in that environment, and that, I'm sure, had a lot to do with my own kind of trajectory in terms of thinking about biblical studies as a future. I, I didn't begin there. I have an associate's degree in aviation administration, so I began off in, in a very different route. Um, my two older brothers, one went into accounting, and the other one went into computer science, and I was kind of headed in that direction, too. But somewhere in the middle of my college years, I felt a call to go into um, something more directly into ministry, although it didn't feel like pastoral ministry. So it didn't feel like the uh, traditional pastorate. But I went and got an undergraduate degree in biblical and religious studies. And then I went to seminary and, and continued on this journey, wrote a master's thesis on Moses and the fourth gospel, but was really engaged in, in, in trying to figure out how lots of different people were utilizing the Bible. So my own journey from those early years was starting to kind of inform larger theological questions for me. And so I continued to pursue them and and went on to do a PhD studies in what was called at the time Christian origins, early Christian origins, and wrote a dissertation on how Jesus used scripture. I was still very much interested in the function of scripture, how scripture was functioning for different communities. And all of that led me into an investigation of um, how early African Americans in this country engaged the text, engaged the biblical text. There was a recent discussion when I was in grad school, Kane Felder's edited volume, Stony the Road We Trod, came out, and a number of my peers and I were kind of reading that on the side while we were doing our other more formal work. And although at the time I didn't quite see how intertextuality and black life was going together in direct kind of formal theoretical ways, when I look back at my dissertation, I had footnotes in there about Sojourner Sojourner Truth and how she says, I don't just read small things like letters, I read texts and nations, right? So, Mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of informing behind the scenes, that was kind of doing some work on me. So Now, um, Emerson, before before we go on, you you mentioned the word intertextuality. Yeah. Can you uh, explain that? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think about it simply as 
the way later text interact with earlier text. So, and that could happen in a variety of ways. Um, so, I mean, early Christians reading from their sacred scripture and how they might reread it in a in a in a, in a specific kind of way. I'm just thinking. I was I was actually looking at a passage uh, today in a class. We were looking at Deuteronomy 24 and then how Jesus reads it in Mark 10. Mm-hmm. And in Deuteronomy 24, it's talking about a male right giving uh, a bill of divorcement to his wife. Uh, and we it was in, it's in a women in the Bible class. So in Mark 10, it was not just that the male could be allowed to give the bill of divorcement, but a female could be allowed to give a bill of divorcement uh, without going mm-hmm. into Jesus's own tension over divorce. Uh, you know, it was just kind of an, an interesting engagement of one text inside of another text and how that text functions there, but also how later readers engage with an older text. So intertextuality, uh, I know, can be in, in, in defined in more sophisticated theoretical ways, but for me, it's, 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 sim- it's as simple as one text getting new life in another text. Yeah. Uh, and both of those texts are part of, let's say, Christian scripture. Yeah, that's right. right. Because it's within our Bible we see this relationship between text, this intertextuality. Yeah, that's right. That's the way intertextuality is generally used in biblical studies. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, with that, I mean, that brings us then, I think, to our topic, because we're looking at the, in something you've written about recently, fairly recently, the way in which the Bible was used, uh, can we say appropriated? Yeah. Or maybe maybe reimagined or something like that. Yeah. On the part of uh, enslaved African Americans before the Civil War, and that's that's an exploration on your part on just on hermeneutics, on interpretation, right, and on how people have used texts and why they've used texts the way they have, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, that brings us to you know something we were talking about earlier before we before we hit record that uh, we thought was really interesting, which is you know at the very beginning when we're talking about enslaved peoples, it's it's interesting that. African Americans adopted the religion and the religious texts of those who enslaved them. And just curious if you have theories or thoughts on, on or studies on, on why that is, like what was going on that led, led to that? Because it seems a little counterintuitive. No, I, I think that's right. I think that's, um, I would not say that that was the original question behind our work, but, but I would say that we were surprised by 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 it as well, right? I mean, it's 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 one thing to, and and it's complicated. So some 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 formerly enslaved folks, and and I'll, I'll kind of use that uh, because most of the work that that I, I was working on was working with traditionally called slave narratives. I like to refer to them as freedom narratives because these are all written by formerly enslaved individuals who are then reflecting back on their time during human bondage. So, uh, but some folks, when they heard slaves obey your masters, um, there's one, one particular, um, uh, writer by the name of Charles Ball. He talks about his grandfather. My grandfather, finally heard slaves obey your masters uh, enough and finally walked away from the Christian religion altogether and decided to return to uh, the faith of our African gods. So, so it's complicated. Some, some people heard that message, slave obey your masters, and they decided to try to find another way to read Paul 
right? So, and found in Paul a person, a fellow sufferer, co-sufferer. So, uh-huh. one that we could could use. Uh, he 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 now stands with us, right? And so, the Paul of Acts who who says. Um, God hath made, they're all reading the King James Version, right? God hath made of all, of all uh, nations one, hath made one of all nations, right? This idea from Acts 17, that's the Paul uh, they wanted to engage with. So, so that was a way of putting in conversation with, hang on, the slaves obey your masters can't be the final word. Must be something more. So, so uh, they were capitalized, is it fair to say they were capitalizing on the complex portrait of Paul in the New Testament itself. Because Paul can sometimes sound like he's not questioning the institution of slavery and elsewhere he's suffering at the hands of oppressors. Yeah, no. So that, to, yeah. you take it, you take, you sort of run with, I mean, and who hasn't done this, right? You, you run with those parts that speak to you more directly. Yeah, the themes that you find, right? That kind of support, yeah. you, support your view. Um, well, well, one question, just backing up from that a little sure. bit. I don't know if this is even answerable, but all that, 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 what we're saying now assumes something that is still hard for, I think, some of us to understand, which is why that would have been an important argument for some enslaved peoples to make, which gets back to, I guess, Jared's original question, like why even have an interest in the religious system of people who were oppressing you? Is it, yeah, I mean, I mean, do you have an answer to that? That's To me, that's a curious thing. I mean, yeah. we could just say because they discovered that God loved them and you know, they went with that, but this is, you know, this is this is a foreign concept, you would have to think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that many of them were religious people, right? So, I'm not thinking here now of kind of first generations folks who came over from Africa. They, they certainly came with some religious perspective. Al Roberto and his slave religion book shows this. Um, but But those who were second, third, fourth generation here and still in human bondage, um, the Frederick Douglass period, the Harriet Jacobs period, these folks grew up in circles, not just within uh, the families that they serve, the white families that they serve, but they also knew other folks who were having uh, religious ceremonies, right, in the Brush Harbor meeting. So they were religious folks and, and there's certainly lots of struggles. Um, you can hear some of that in the spirituals, uh, although we don't wrestle with the spirituals and biblical interpretation, uh, you could. But in the spirituals, how those songs played out, um, right? So there's lots of spiritual songs about, a couple of people have written on this, where there's lots of um, suffering in the spirituals and even crucifixion, Jesus, right? Jesus dying. But there's not a lot of spirituals about resurrection, right? So it's kind of, so they're, they're religious and trying to understand what God is doing in the world, but at the same time, it's very complicated. Uh, so so it's, it's, a, it's an attempt to, to uh, I mean, it, right, what, what does one do if you're having to develop your own theological construction, 
right? If the one that has been given to you doesn't work because it doesn't, it's not just doesn't feel right. It's hard to begin with a God who doesn't like me. That's, that's tough. So, so there's lots of engagement, I think, through those songs. And we, we know that they are, Frederick Douglass tells a story, not in the first narrative that he writes, or even in the second narrative he writes, but one that he writes towards the end of his life, in which he found several pages of the Bible that were soiled. They were just in the street. He says, and he, and he just he got a hold of them and he just cherished them because he thought here he got some access to the text that, that, yeah, his mistress had taught him to read. And by the way, she taught him when he was nine years old or seven years old. I can't remember now which year, but he was very young from the book of Job. That's what he's learning for the first time. I mean, imagine oh, the book of yeah. Job as a child, right? So, wow. but he found these pages and he thought, I can read now. I get access on my own. I can kind of start to develop my own thinking. This is now, this is the Douglas, the later Douglas reflecting back on that. So trying to, to wrestle out a theological system or a faith in God that feels and looks different than what you might be hearing on a regular basis, right? It doesn't begin with God wants me in human bondage. He wants me enslaved. It begins with God loves me and this is something's wrong here. <laughs> and, and, and so uh, Alan Callahan, who, who, who wrote a book a number of years ago, um, different, very different, because he was looking at lots of African-American sources, but he talks about the Bible as giving uh, the early enslaved an opportunity to ask questions. So it wasn't just answering questions, it was giving them an opportunity to ask questions. And I find that to be very useful uh, in my own uh, kind of reading of the slave narratives. There's lots of wrestling with scripture. So that seemed to be just kind of part of the faith practice, part of what it meant to be a follower, part of what it meant to go out to the Brush Harbor to sing these difficult songs in the middle of a difficult time. Well, when you, when you were talking about the spirituals, it made me think, did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. 
At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. You know, you said there's a lot of emphasis on on death and not as much on resurrection. It made me think, you know, we talk some on this podcast about how we all, we all pick and choose from the Bible because it's so diverse, and we can pick different starting places like what you were saying. So, do you find that in some of these freedom narratives or in these freedom narratives, you find themes of a different starting place or what books or passages would have been emphasized over others and what does that kind of tell us about the faith of these these folks? Yeah, uh, uh, one of the things we were actually we we never did it, but we had we had wanted to put kind of a an index in the back of this book because we we were really pleasantly surprised to see how many books of the Bible, how numerous passages that are just kind of referenced or highlighted. Uh, we went after some some specific themes in our own uh, work, but there were lots of books books of the Bible that are being read and engaged. Harriet Jacobs, uh, her critical biographer, uh, Jean Fagan Yellen, who, who says that during her time, during Harriet Jacobs' time, when she was stuck in the garret, an attic of her grandmother's house, for seven years she was up there. She actually ended up developing some, some significant uh, leg cramps the rest of her life from this. But during that time, she had no one to communicate with, but she had her Bible. Her grandmother had given her her Bible. And she just poured over those pages. And there's lots of evidence of that in her, in her narrative. She just, she has Job and Isaiah and the Gospels. I'm actually working on something right now where I'm looking at Harry Jacobs' engagement with the Good Samaritan. Uh, I mean, it's just lots of different texts that show up in her narrative. Some more subtle some just seeming like just kind of a, an illusion. Other places where she's really engaging the text more fully, and you can see it kind of play out in her narrative. So, so there, there, are, there are lots, lots, and lots of for our our work. We we were trying to to do a couple of things. On the one hand, I mean, it's hard not to tell this story without thinking about how masters used Pauline language. So, we were trying to then think about how the formerly enslaved not only retold those stories uh, in those settings in order to get some sense of reactions to those uh, sermons, but also how they might have um, uh, re- reappropriated Paul. And, and, and I mentioned earlier about the fellow sufferer of Paul, the Acts Paul, the, the, the Paul who sometimes uh, we have a number of, of stories in the narratives where uh, Harry Jacobs actually tells one, but she's not alone. Solomon Bailey tells one where they would hear a slaves obey your masters type sermon. And 
the enslaved would simply hear the sermon and walk away and never come back. So just kind of a silent critique. Um, and, and, and then sometimes the narrators would tell you how the white minister would respond. There would be some reaction to it. Um, so there were lots of ways for engaging with Paul, but, but we also found that they wanted to think also about race and racial construction. So the Genesis 9, curse your ham, uh, curse of ham uh, myth, that's probably the dominant myth, biblical myth of this, of this moment, antebellum period. There were some direct reactions to that. Well, um, uh, can you explain the curse of Ham for those who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, that? so Noah and his sons and his entire family, right? They survived the flood in Genesis 9, and now Noah has had a little too much wine, and he is in, uh, um, he's, he's, he's drunk in the Genesis 9 narrative, and uh, Ham, one of the children, sees his father's nakedness, he comes out and he tells the other two brothers, Shem and Japhath, and they march in backwards with a cloth, uh, with a garment to cover their father. They cover their father. Noah comes to, and he curses Canaan, the son of Ham. So he doesn't curse Ham directly. He curses Canaan, and he says, one of, well, one of the things he says is, you will be servant of servant shall you be. You shall serve your brothers and their families. And so, of course, there's... Right in biblical scholarship, there are ways to think about that uh, in relationship to Israel's relationship to Canaan. For for the 19th century context, that curse of Ham or curse of Canaan became really crucial for for thinking about at least one rationale for why African people could be enslaved. Right. So it, it was a proof text, right? Yeah, for that's right. Pro-slavery people and let's say, a very creative appropriation of that text. Yeah, that's right. Because it really has absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with this. But, but again, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a way to hook an existing belief into a sacred text. Right. And, and, and in the 19th century context, it would fit in well. I mean, not just in terms of the pro-slavery argument, but the idea that lots of people, uh, even those not thinking about slavery directly, although it's hard to imagine people who weren't, but in the 19th century, lots of identification conversations were going on, right? As people groups and migration and the movement of ethnic groups uh, was, was happening, lots of folks were reading the Bible or listening to the Bible, and they were finding potential proofs for these identification markers, right? So... And they were using, yeah, there were lots of proof texts in this way. So it would, it would have fit quite naturally in that sense. Um, ah, that might explain it, right? Because so, lots of people are digging up stuff in the 19th century to think about identifying markers like that. Hello, my name is Jay Batson, and I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can help other normal people just like you hear more about how to read the Bible in a new way that still honors Scripture and God. Visit patreon.com slash thebiblefornormalpeople to learn more about the rewards available to supporters. You'll find the supporters group of Patreon to be a great place to ask hard questions about our closely held beliefs. 
If you're like me, you'll know that real change can be ugly and uncomfortable before it becomes glorious. You can support and help others harmonize their faith, the Bible, and modern life by supporting the podcast. So head to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people and sign up there. One group in particular we want to thank is the producers group. This collection of people helped keep Pete and Jared on their toes. So our thanks goes out to Jacqueline Van Beek, Matthew Henry, Douglas Barnhart, Erica and Eric Brown, Hannah Paxton, Tracy Roberts, Mark Sims, and Jeff Lolly. Pete, Jared, and the rest of us, thank you for your help. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, and this, I mean, uh, I don't want to introduce more terminology than we need to, yeah. but what we are talking about here is how communities receive this biblical text and what they do with it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and th- that's just a fascinating thing because I think we all do that on some level. We, we engage the text based on what we already believe and what we know to be true, quote-unquote true. Right. And we find hooks. You know, I mean, maybe – I don't know how you feel about this, Emerson, but maybe a contemporary example of that is finding immigration reform in the Bible – <laughs> yeah, no, I think that I think that's a good one. I think there are several that one can find in the in, when folks uh, think about the present political moment and then they go to the Bible with that question, right? That's yeah. All of a sudden, uh, it's interesting. It's really interesting kind of interpretations mm-hmm. that happen. Exegesis, just it, to, to say the least, right? I, I, I guess, of course, in the period of time that we're talking about now, there is dehumanization happening. Right. That's right. S- systemic dehumanization. So that might be, you know, well, how, you know, because the question, I, you get this, I'm sure I get this all the time, like, well, if there's no one concrete way of understanding these <laughs> texts, if we're all sort of like yeah. um, reading these things in light of our experience, how do you ever know which side is right? Right. And the answer might be, well, how are you treating people? That's yeah. sort of the first thing to go to. No, I think that's right. You know, love God, love neighbor seems to be kind of a fundamental uh, starting point. Uh, so, how does one treat one's neighbor? How does one how does one use the Bible in relationship to the other? Right. And so, if my mm-hmm. if my reading of the Bible dehumanizes someone, there's probably something wrong with my reading of the Bible. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. Okay. Well, let me let me throw something at you then, um, and just to see how you would respond. To a statement like this, the Bible is not really a book of liberation, but it can be read that way. Or would you disagree with that? The Bible is a book of revela- uh, uh, liberation. No, I, I know lots. And, yeah, I know lots of good people, people I would consider friends, uh, who would disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I think, I think the Bible cannot speak for itself. I think the Bible always has interpreters. That is what complicates this, for lack of a better term, the American Bible or, or any Bible in any particular culture. But this is where we are. And this is, this is, so the Bible comes to us through a variety of traditions, but it has to, we, we want it to now say something, or at least those of us who are committed to having the Bible as a resource, as a theological resource, are committed to finding ways to allow it to speak in our contemporary moment. But part of what that means is I have to interpret it. So it, it just can't speak directly on its own. 
Yeah, it's, um, not, it's never just there. R- right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I would agree with your, the way you uh, put that. Well, but, it, you know, just to, to add on to that, I think it doesn't you, – you said it complicates it. I think it does complicate it. But it's also, as you're saying, it's also that that particular element of a text is also the opportunity for us to have it be relevant, have it be uh, connected to our lived experience. So it's sort of two sides of the same coin. We can't necessarily have it be uh, relevant and connect to our lived experience without that the risk of that interpretive element that it's never just there. Um, it's never uninterpreted, but that that's the very act of making it alive today. I think that's what makes it a living tradition. Yeah, that's right. Is, is, the, is the ongoing attempt, our ongoing attempt to interpret and, and to in, interpret in community, to engage one another and, and not just to do it on our own. That's what helps keep us all, I think, somehow. I mean, those of us who are committed to reading the Bible within community, it helps keep us all in check. So that way we can we can we can call out one another if if there is a dehumanizing because I do think that draws the line then we someone in, within my community has to say to me Emerson something's not right about that good well maybe you can do that you can you can carry on that line of thinking because that's exactly what I was going to ask is you know what are the values of I, I would have grown up in a tradition more in line with sort of it's me and Jesus and and this is a personal devotional book and there would have been a sense of community but it wouldn't have been the emphasis of reading this book in community and the value that it brings. So maybe could you say a, a word or two more about the value of reading in community and, and maybe even what does it look like to read in community? What, what, what are the actual, what, like just very simplistically, what does it mean to do that? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and first of all, I, I would say, you know, I'm not opposed to people reading the Bible devotionally. I, I think that that's a necessary practice, but I think that's a, that's one practice, right? And people need mm-hmm. multiple practices with Scripture. And a practice that I find very useful is to read it along with others, to read it with others with whom I, I may, I'm committed to, but I may not necessarily agree with. Um, I may not agree with them in terms of their own theological uh, systems uh, that they're speaking from. I may not agree with them in terms of even their, their political agendas, but to read Scripture in communion in that way puts lots of, I think, really hard questions, uh, both to the text, and maybe we can hear the text differently. Uh, we can hear the biblical text differently in that way. And, and I think, uh, I think to, to make this even maybe more simple, I think, is communities read Scripture best when they are committed to one another and committed to others, right? Committed outside of themselves. So, they're, 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 they're looking at others around them. Uh, and I think reading scripture in the middle of that setting will, will raise the kinds of issues and questions and, and force us into actions. So I don't think that that should be separate from, right? So Harriet Jacobs, she was engaged in not just reading scripture, but she was, she was running a anti-slavery reading room. She was raising money right at the end of the civil war for schools in DC and down in South Carolina and Alexandria, uh, Virginia, and then down in South Carolina. She, I mean, so and, and, and I, I'm convinced, even though she doesn't say this explicitly in her narratives, I've read all of her letters. The University of North Carolina have published her letters, and she's the only African-American female formerly enslaved for whom we have letters and, and extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary documents. And we can kind of trace her history. And her faith is really crucial 
for the things that she's doing. Her reading of scriptural text and her engagement with others kind of go hand in hand. So I think if we're reading scripture on behalf of others for their well-being, I think that's a good starting point. Hmm. Well, let me, let me ask um, Emerson, uh, I want to get back into the Old Testament a little bit here. I'm thinking about what you explained earlier, the formerly enslaved people writing freedom narratives. And, you know, clearly the Exodus story is an obvious source of, uh, let's say, their spiritual imagination for how they relate to their creator and how they can have hope for, you know, eventual liberation. But how, I mean, how did they handle, I mean, if, if we know this, something like this, but how did they handle those places in the Old Testament, even in the book of Exodus, where it, see, it seems like enslaved people were not really thought of as fully human? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, James Pennington, who publishes his narrative in 1849, he is a, a prominent uh, minister of a Shiloh Presbyterian Church, pretty fairly large church in New York City at the time. He sat outside the classrooms at Yale Divinity School. They wouldn't let him inside the classroom. And he kind of secured some theological education that way. Eventually, at the end of the 1840s, right around the time when he's writing his narrative, publishing his narrative, he also receives an honorary doctorate from the University of Heidelberg in Germany. Um, James wow. Pennington is actually the one who, when Frederick Douglass escaped, uh, he was uh, along with Anna Murray. He married Anna Murray, and Anna Murray was a free black woman, but she lived in Maryland with him and, and came north with him. James Pennington married them. Uh, James Pennington is well-connected. He, he had one of the most popular narratives in, in that day in terms of just sales. He, he puts it this way about these passages. If we could find some Canaanites... Maybe we could enslave them. I mean, he really found this kind of right, this way of saying, what's happening? All of a sudden, on the one hand, people do these literal readings of biblical text, and then they stop doing it, right? Uh, and and that was, that, that's one way to respond to that. Okay, if, if, I, were, if I were speaking to him, yeah. I would say, okay, I get it, but also it's the assumption, at least in Exodus and Deuteronomy— that you can have Hebrew slaves. Yeah. No, I, I don't. So, I don't think Pennington would would have any problem with not having them now. But this was something that ancient Israel did, and it wasn't right. I mean, by the time of Jesus, there's still slavery going on. So yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, there, he actually writes. The, he gets the honorary doctor from Heidelberg because he wrote uh, a volume called "The History of Colored People." Sometimes it shows up as the history of Negro people, but I think the history of colored people was the original uh, title. But very much aware of, and he starts with ancient Egypt, right? So he's very much aware of this, of this, uh, of of ancient populations, a ancient slavery, ancient practices. He just doesn't think that those practice practices should have continued. Now I don't know. At least I haven't found in Pennington's work where he thinks it stopped. Right? I don't find, uh, but he just thinks. What happened back then in biblical days needs to remain back then with regards to slavery anyway. God has no, this is, this is his, I'm, I'm summarizing him, but he uses this language of uh, uh, the immaculate God. The immaculate God has absolutely nothing to do with human bondage, with, with slavery. Mm -hmm. 
It's inconsistent with like the nature of God. Completely inconsistent. And you, I mean, that argument was made by like by Origin, for example, talking about violence, divine violence. Mm, Like, yeah, there's no way. (laughs) Right, right, right. There's no way the Creator would do this. So we got to do something with this story. And it's again, it's starting with spiritual experience in a sense, and saying these things are just incompatible and. And you wind up picking and choosing, and I know people say that's like a bad thing, <laughs> but I don't know anybody who doesn't do that. That's right. That's right. Yeah, who, mm-hmm. who's, who's continuing to cast lots, right? Um, I mean, there are some Mennonites who continue to cast lots, but they're few and far between. I mean, it's right, but, but nothing said stop <laughs> casting lots. So I think, right, um, I think in some ways, if we had different language besides picking and choosing or selecting, it might work better, right? I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. It's, it's, it sounds very negative to put it that way, right. but it's, yeah. 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 Well, what are some of the, you know, you've done, you've done a lot of, of historical work. What has been the impact of that on how you currently engage Scripture in your faith community? Um, for me, one of the things it does is to uh, to recognize the significant value of we we all read from a certain vantage point and so uh, when i'm in in my community we have different positions sometimes i'm male so i have certain power as a male right there there there's certain power statuses i have and then there are other times i might not and to help people to kind of think about when they're reading and engaging scripture out of their perspective of power that, that's one thing it's done for me. That, that, that's, I think that it is one of those starting points to helping us to do as much as we can to read on behalf of the other, to read on behalf of the one who, I mean, if, if we could all, right, I mean, obviously, if we could all be like Jesus, that would be great. But I mean, but, but even Jesus is imagining the Samaritan, right? Just to imagine the other as the hero of his story, what a great, what a great hermeneutical principle. Imagine that my reading is of Scripture, whatever passage I'm dealing with, would be best if I place the one who is less like me or one I cannot even conceive of as significant at the center. If I can imagine like that, then perhaps that might be a better way to conceive of God's work in the world. Um, mm. Working for these years with the documents of the enslaved and trying to kind of uh, hear them, trying to hear them well has made me think about my own, you know, I'm a PhD, I have a PhD, right? Um, and I, and I, and I operate from a position of authority in my classrooms, right? Even in my church setting, right? When we, do you have authority in your classrooms. <laughs> How do you pull that off? I'm well, still trying to find to, it. I have to keep reminding them. <laughs> I'm going to retire in a few. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, well and with that, I mean, what I'm hearing you say, well, maybe I can reframe it um, using language that is more uh, common for me, but is we, it, it reminds me of what Jesus says in, in Matthew 7 about good trees bearing good fruit and bad trees bearing bad fruit. And... Basically, our reading strategy, what I hear you saying is we, we need to actually first adopt a Jesus ethic of, 
of uh, we have to have a, of a priority or a prioritization of those without power, those who are oppressed, those in our society uh, who are looked down upon. And our reading strategy, we have to begin with that ethical framework and assumption in order to read the Bible well. And when we don't do that, when we read it from a place of privilege and we don't recognize it as privilege and we use it to defend our places of privilege, we are inevitably going to find ways to do that. So, the Bible doesn't necessarily correct the ethical framework. It's this adage that Jesus says that, you know, the bad tree, if you start with a bad tree, if you start with a bad hermeneutic or a bad ethic, you can get bad fruit, but it's bad. Right. Um, and if you start with a good foundation or good root system, a good tree, and you read the Bible through that framework, you're going to end up with good fruit. And so, the Bible in some ways is, can be a neutral source of what we come to it with. And that just is a, it's an interesting thing because in my, my tradition, it would have been, you know, you start with the Bible and if you read it as it should be written hmm. or read, then you come out with a good ethic. Hmm. And in some ways, it sounds like it's flipped that we, we begin from this place of uh, the Jesus way of seeing the world. And that includes then how we read the Bible. Would that be a fair way of saying that? Yeah, I think so. Um, we, we almost, uh, with, with the Genesis of Liberation book, we almost published the book without, um, without writing an excursus on Jesus. Uh, and that, and the excursus, an excursus on Jesus we wrote was because the editor said, you can't write this book. If people in the black church get this book, they want to know about Jesus. And I thought, no, that's right. That's right. That's the starting point. And that's the starting point for the enslaved. So in our excursus, on Jesus, because we were really dealing with, with scriptural passages, right? Biblical passages, scriptural text. And we thought, well, I mean, I know Jesus is a kind of text, but Jesus is not really a text. But Jesus is a text. Uh, and, and for the enslaved, it's, it, it's, we actually called the, um, we, we titled the excursus, Jesus Christ was sold to the highest bidder. And, actually, <laughs> and that, that actually comes mm -hmm. directly out of Peter Randolph's narrative. Because yeah. for them, the starting point was, yeah, you're about to sell us and break off our families, but Jesus is on the auction block with us. He's not hmm. with you selling us. That's impossible for us to conceive of Jesus that way, right? So it begins with Jesus. Jesus is the text. And then you go to the text next. And, and, I, and I think that's right. I think the way you put that, Jared, um, I think that's right. Hmm. Well, listen, wonderful. Um, Emerson, we, we're, we're really getting to the end of this time now we have together. Sorry about that. Oh, but, no. Wow. Uh, pretty powerful stuff. <laughs> but um, anything you want to leave us with, like, if you're working on anything at the moment? I know you published this book not too long ago. and Yeah. And grading things, too. Or, <laughs> or just where people can find you if they want to connect with you at all online. Yeah. I mean, I have a Twitter account. That's my activity uh, in the social media, Emerson B. Powery. Um, um, hashtag Emerson B. Powery. Um, and I'm, um, I'm actually working on a project uh, on the Good Samaritan, um, thinking about the Good Samaritan through both in terms of Luke's context in Luke 10, Luke's the only gospel that has it, but also in later voices. So uh, Augustine 
and trying to dig deep in Augustine's world, his conflict with the Donatist and his telling of the Good Samaritan there, and then Howard Thurman. I'm putting Howard Thurman in conversation with Augustine. Howard Thurman's little uh, volume, Jesus and the Disinherited, was carried mm-hmm. around by Martin Luther King, and his, along with his Bible, he carried Thurman's uh, little book. Um, and then I'm putting a conversation um, with uh, Harriet Jacobs and her reading of the Good Samaritan in conversation with a Nicaraguan community from the 1970s of the Solentaname community that was led by uh, Ernesto Cardinal. And um, they have these great popular Bible studies and, and a number of engagements with the Good Samaritan. So I'm putting those in conversation uh, as a way of then going back and thinking about uh, Luke's context, uh, right? And just how Jesus himself uh, imagined the other as the hero of yeah. the story. So. Well, the, these ongoing conversations between the horizons yeah. of the ancient and different contemporary moments. So, Well, that's that's powerful stuff, Emerson. We yeah. appreciate it. Thanks so much for being with us. We really had a great time. Glad you had a chance to stop by. Great. Thanks. Virtually. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah enjoyed it. I Thanks enjoyed so much. It. See ya. Bye-bye. Well, folks, thanks for listening to another episode of The Bible for Normal People. We hope you have a chance to check out Emerson's book and find him on Twitter and engage him further on, to understate the matter, a very important topic. Yeah, and while you're online, we did just want to remind everyone that uh, we appreciate all the support that we get on Patreon. So if you can, we'd appreciate you heading there to uh, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. There's ways to engage in the conversation that we just had, as well as many others um, there for, for different levels of support. So we really appreciate everyone that makes this podcast possible, and we'll see you next time. See ya.